Union Square Ventures is one of the most prominent East Coast VC firms and is also one of the most notable mainstream investors in the Bitcoin market. On this episode of The Scoop, USV partner Nick Grossman joined us to discuss the firm's approach to investing in the market. He was recently promoted to partner to lead blockchain investments after five years with the firm. We spoke about Libra Association, which USV is a member of. We examined USV's portfolio and talked about the future of venture capital and the future of capital formation. I hope you enjoy the episode. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm very excited for what is an incredibly special episode of The Scoop. I'm joined by my very special co-host, Theo Leibowitz, and we are here with Union Square Venture partner, Nick Grossman. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. Listeners, you've probably heard of this firm. It's you know very well known and respected in the cryptocurrency market, led by its, its you know, uh, very impressive leader, Fred Wilson. And, you know, they have two funds that are making investments in cryptocurrency-related projects. First, first, I think the first company you invested in was Coinbase in yep. 2013. So early to the market um, relative to a number of other players. It's not known exactly how much you guys have in the market, um, but it's certainly sizable yep. relative to some of the other things you're investing in. Uh, I think... The best place to start, Nick. Uh, the firm recently made headlines uh, for a comment Fred had about Ethereum. I'm just going to read it for the listeners. I'm going to put on my my reading voice, which is different from my podcast voice. And this is what he said. Ethereum, as many of you know, confounds me. It has shown the way to so many important things. Smart contracts, programmable, programmable trust-free computing, potentially proof-of-stake, and a lot more. But it remains hard to build on. Scaling issues abound, and many developers are looking elsewhere. I think it'd be interesting to dive into some of these remarks and and have a conversation around uh, Ethereum and whether or not it is a match for Bitcoin or other uh, cryptocurrencies and projects out there, and whether or not... Fred's view is uh, equivalent to maybe your own. Yeah, so, um, you know, first off, you know, the best person to talk to about Fred's view would be maybe Fred. Fred, So uh, maybe we can get him on here next and have that conversation. Um, And I know, you know, Fred's post the other day kicked off a lot of uh, debate on Twitter. Um, And Albert published a similar post as well. Yep. And I think there are, you know, I can't consider myself an expert. It's hard for anybody to consider themselves an expert on any of this because all of it is so new. And so everybody is looking for a lens and everybody's looking for a framework. Um, you know, is, is Ethereum the AOL of crypto? Uh, you know, is Bitcoin the, the IP of, you know, the money protocol stack? I think we're all searching for, you know, a way to look at this. Um, I mean, 
I'm not sure exactly which part of Fred's comments is is really considered controversial. For sure, um, it has been such an interesting project to to watch and be around, and uh, the level of creativity that is happening on top of it is ridiculous. Um, I'm in love with the idea of open interoperable protocols where people can, you know, take assets and interconnect them with other assets without asking anybody's permission. So, you know, generally the idea of permissionless innovation on top of new protocols is an incredible, incredible thing. And you're seeing that in the DeFi space, you're seeing that in NFTs, um, and Ethereum, like, just open that all up, right? Uh, including, you know, ICOs and tokens back in 2017. So the part about Ethereum being like this magical uh, sandpit, you know, uh, and toolkit is, I think, indisputable. So maybe the question is about the scaling and whether that's going to work or not going to work. Sure. Um, Which is something that even, you know, Vitalik Buterin has come out and admitted publicly saying, I mean, I remember this was a year ago or maybe even longer when we were at $500 billion market cap. He said, look, listen, we're not really there yet. The market in terms of the development of, of these dApps and, and the decentralized protocols being built on top of Ethereum, there's not as many users as, you know, that would be as meaningful as where we can go or where we can potentially go. Where I think Fred and Vitalik probably disagree is that Vitalik sees a path to scalability. Yep. And from Fred's post, my interpretation was that Fred doesn't necessarily think that Ethereum can execute on that roadmap and that it could or, or will probably be usurped by one of these competing smart contracts platforms. You know, maybe. Um, I think there's a, you could argue that there's a really, really strong network effect in Ethereum in terms of developers and exchanges and assets and projects and that just simply undoing that is not like practical or possible. Um, you could also, I think a lot of it depends on timing um, and, you know, ETH 2.0 and how it, you know, how and when it, it evolves. And, and I, I honestly, I'm not the one to handicap that. Um, a lot of new projects are emerging, um, Cosmos and Polkadot and Algorand and thousands of others. And I think it's too early to say exactly what they'll all be good for. Um, you know, even when Ethereum launched, nobody knew really what it was going to be great at. And it turns out it was great at creating tokens and creating new kinds of assets. And in particular, you know, sort of slow moving assets. Um, and it took a while for that to become apparent. I think it's going to take a while for what other projects are good at to become apparent. And so sure, I think for sure there's a world where, um, you know, Ethereum just charges on and it evolves and the improvements that get shipped, you know, really make a big difference. And I think it's also possible that uh, as other projects get online, uh, certain use cases become super, you know, um, appropriate for those. So in a way, that's kind of a non-answer. I, 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 I know a lot of really smart people who are long Ethereum and believe that it will you know, make placeholder being one corner, of them. Placeholder, placeholder being, being one of them. One of them. And, and, uh, exactly. And, and, and Joel Manegro published almost a response, but it actually came out before Fred and Albert's it, pieces. It was, yep, yep. Um, pretty much taking the exact opposite view. Yep. And I, you know, and there are a lot of, uh, and at the same time, there are a lot of projects that are, you know, that have a lot of smart people behind them who are, you know, building alternatives. So I, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not the one sure. to place a binary bet on either. My, my personal, like, I think one thing we've learned from watching all of these crypto assets is that, and blockchains, is that they don't just go away. Um, you know, as much as we'd like to say some of them <laughs> go away. Maybe. Um, and so, you know, there, I, I think it's going to be long and, and slow. And, and the other thing to remember is that we're just so at the very beginning of all this that uh, I have a hard time making predictions. Fair enough. Far. Well, we can get friend on the line at some point. We should, but um, but here, I guess, is a slightly more direct question, which sure. is that as an investor, you don't necessarily have the privilege of waiting around and seeing how this space develops. Um, so you, you, you do have to allocate capital. You do have to place certain bets. Yep. So how are you thinking about this space and, yeah. and how are you adapting your investments? Yeah, for sure thing. I mean, the an important thing to 
realize also about USV is that we're not a crypto only yeah, fund. Um, we your make, funds aren't even solely they're not even dedicated solely to correct crypto. we we have traditional venture funds out of which we're investing in education companies and healthcare companies and infrastructure companies and so on and and we see the crypto space as an important you know next piece of all this infrastructure um, but unlike some other funds who are out there investing in everything our strategy is to make a smaller number of of bets and with or investments in what we think are important categories and um, it, and I guess to some extent it raises the question of what are the categories that you think are going to matter. Um, so you know we we backed the Algorand project, which just launched, which is you know one of many projects working in the proof of stake space. I think there's a lot of opportunity to do certain things using that architecture. Um, we were early backers of the Filecoin project, you know, uh, which you know, is really coming along. And when, when that launches, like that's a different piece of the stack and a, and a different, you know, piece of infrastructure. We just backed a project called Helium, which is in the decentralized telecom space. And so sort of one, we backed the company uh, Dapper Labs behind CryptoKitties. And so we've been trying to map out, you know, okay, you know, like store of value, you know, sort of smart contracts, different types of computing infrastructure, gaming, um, you know, other pieces of uh, adjacent infrastructure like like Coinbase, like sort of the whole like developer tools uh, category. So, you know, I for sure big important projects are going to get built in all of those areas. And part of the challenge is understanding the different economics of them and, you know, and, and the timing of all of them. I, but I don't see it as a sort of a zero sum. Like I, I try not to focus all my time on Ethereum versus something else, sure. a, just a head-to-head -head zero. Well, I think that's way. a great answer that parlays into, you know, what Teo and I wanted to talk about um, next, which is looking at USV as a, as a firm um, in the context of the cryptocurrency community, um, how it operates maybe differently from others, and and how uh, the day-to-day -day might be different from other firms in the space. But I guess the best place to start, I think, would be just. Uh, what we were talking about before we turn sure. the mics on. Uh, when you first started as a VC in this, in this space or started investing in this space, you kind of were thinking, well, what can we do that our LPs can't do? Or what can we invest in that our LPs might have a difficult time investing in? Describe for the listeners um, how that sort of transpired and then has progressed up until this point. Yeah, sure. Uh, we wrote a post... Um, I don't know, sometime within the last year about uh, somewhat uh, about part of our strategy investing in crypto. And um, the big idea, the big takeaway is that investing in this category has caused us to change the way we look at how we operate as an investment fund. You know, for the first, we, USV was founded in 2003. Uh, for the first 10 years, we operated like a traditional VC doing early stage equity investments in companies. And that's how you invested in internet applications and infrastructure um, if you believe that the blockchain and crypto space is the next generation of internet applications and infrastructure as we do uh, we want to invest in that too and yet the market is entirely different it's not just companies it's not just private investments it's open source projects it's protocols it's communities um, it's public markets that's interesting so and, you're saying yeah. that investing in the landscape that's so diverse in terms of the makeup or structure rather of these companies and projects that's impacted how you invest elsewhere how, how so well it, it it affects the whole structure of how we even do business so um you know that the, the thing we were talking about before was that you know when we made the coinbase investment back in 2013 uh it was clear that we saw cryptocurrencies uh, as important and not just as curiosities but as assets and uh, we told our LPs as much, you know, regularly, but um, our thinking was, well, anybody can buy Bitcoin. You don't need to have special access like a, like a VC does in private deals to buy Bitcoin. And so, you know, they should just go do that on their own. Um, and I think one of the things we've learned over time is that, you know, institutions that want to exposure to this space do need sort of help doing that and so there immediately we evolved our strategy not immediately it took us too long but we evolved our strategy to um you know we're not just going to own equity we're going to own tokens directly 
that seems obvious today, but back in 2016, that was pretty non-obvious. At the time, we had made a bunch of seed investments in projects like Protocol Labs that at the time it was an equity investment, but there wasn't going to be a Series A, it was going to be tokens. And so that step one was, okay, we're gonna have to hold tokens. And then step two was, well, man, Which there's- isn't an easy feat to figure out. Uh, no, I mean, it, and it, again, it seems super obvious today, but at our LP meeting in 2016, we spent three hours you know, talking about how uh, owning tokens is going to be part of the, the VC landscape in the coming years. Um, and so we had to change, you know, we had to think about that. Uh, we had to educate our investors on that. And then we had to, you know, evolve our investing strategy based on that. And so um, as you guys have, have published, we've come up with a new and diversified strategy where we're, you know, uh, investing in token-focused funds, uh, we're investing in companies that are adjacent, you know, to this. We're investing in companies that are issuing tokens. We're buying tokens, you know, directly on the market. We're, you know, we're doing a variety of things, all things that venture funds didn't do five years ago. Um, now, of, uh, separate from that, you have a whole, you know, generation of crypto-focused funds that are doing all these things and more. Um, and so I think it's an incredibly interesting time to be an investor because what it means to be an investor is, is just different and new. It's interesting. So how does that translate into, you know, the day to day? Are you spending most of your time due diligence, doing due diligence on potential new projects to invest in, working with those portfolio companies on growing and expanding their business? Um, are you allocating that time or those resources equally among these different investments? It really varies. Um, you know, we are, we are still, even with all the changes and sort of new approaches, we are, st we are still sort of long-term patient capital for projects. And so uh, we have not immediately flipped over into, you know, a day trading operation, you know, and so on. That's just not who we are. Um, and so from a time allocation perspective, it's, somewhat similar to how it always has been, which is a, a combination of looking for new things and working with our portfolio. Um, and it really goes up and down depending on the complexity of the moment. As everybody here knows, uh, what it means to work with a crypto project is not exactly the same as what it means to work with a company. Um, there are similar issues, but it's you know, a more complex public environment. You know, there's governance to be worked out. There's public markets to be navigated. There's untold, you know, legal and regulatory issues. And so for sure, a lot of my time is working with our existing portfolio on all of that stuff uh, and working, uh, looking at new things. I, li I, I love this term, patient, a, a patient fund or, or patient capital. I feel like there has to be a fund out there called patient capital, <laughs> right? Um, and very much speaks to the way that USV does deploy capital, you guys are, are known for making a, a small number of bets on a, on a yearly basis. I think this year, USV has, has made one single investment in the cryptocurrency space, which is Helium. Yep. Do you expect to make any more investments by the end of this year, 2019? Yeah. Um, you know, like all VCs. And what's the number? Uh, how many investments? Potentially. You know, I mean, we make a small number of investments, period. Um, you know, out of a given fund, which we'll invest over the course of three years, maybe we'll make 20 to 25 investments. So, you know, on the order of eight, seven or eight a year. Um, so it's, and that's a mix across all sectors and we're doing that across two funds. Um, so you, there's no forecasting, you know, precisely when the right opportunities come. Uh, we're always looking for things, but you know, I, I would say that it's likely that we'd make one or two more uh, investments you know this year in the space um sure what what about looking at you've invested in six different funds block tower multi-coin yep. placeholder um what's obviously the process for doing due diligence on on funds and thinking about investing in a fund is different than a project or a company yep how does how does that process work and i guess i'm always curious to know what are the things that they can do that you can't do yourselves and and why not and you know what i mean like why not just you know if it's a more liquid strategy investing in yep. more liquid assets why not you know open up a desk to do that or yep. something else yeah it's a good question part, part I, I would say 
there's three reasons, um, you know, strategy, structure, and you know, experience. Just on the structure side, um, we are a venture fund. Um, without getting too into the weeds, venture funds uh, have restrictions over the kinds of assets that they can buy and sell. Uh, we're exempted from registering uh, with the SEC as an investment advisor, um, which means that we can only buy and sell a limited number of assets that are not private company stock. And so to the extent that we wanted to, say, trade crypto, we'd be very limited in it, how to do that in, a, in an active way. Uh, whereas funds that register, like Andreessen, Andreessen just did, or you know, funds with a hedge fund model, they can trade all day long. So that is like right up there, like a big constraint on operating. And to the extent that we're, we have exposure to public you know, crypto assets, um, it makes sense to box that in a fund structure that has more flexibility, even if it's uh, like a long-term, you know, balanced type of strategy versus an active trading strategy. Um, we, as we built a portfolio of funds to make investments in, um, we knew that we wanted to get broader access to, uh, to, the, to, these, to this asset class. Um, and it would, that was the best way to do it um, sort of at that time period. And we picked a number of different funds that each have different strategies. So, you know, Block Tower is an active trading strategy. You know, Polychain, uh, you know, is is a sort of a slower, um, but still in a hedge fund model. Uh, we, and we look to get some diversity. Uh, Multicoin, you know, has some contrarian, you know, points of view compared to some other funds. Um, and we, we like that. Um, we've obviously known the guys at Placeholder for a long time. They're also investing in more of a venture strategy early stage. And so we wanted to get a balance of perspectives and strategies. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, as much exposure and depth as we maybe we have in this market, um, we're still looking at lots of things. And the folks who are just chest deep in this all day, every day, I think have a level of technical, you know, sophistication and uh, thinking that is really, really valuable. And so I think we've, you know, really benefited from having closer relationships with managers in the space who are just super smart and out there every day. It also gives you an interesting perspective on the market in terms of seeing how, and we've seen this over the past, you know, two years, a blurring of the line, so to speak, between these cryptocurrency hedge funds and cryptocurrency venture firms. Yep. Um, many of the, the hedge funds in the long tail that kind of got wiped out, tried to pivot to VC, and some were successful. Block Tower's one that you know, makes VC investments. They're one of our investors, as an example. Um, how do you see that uh, continuing to play out over the next few years in terms of that, that blurring of the lines? And do you see it impacting, you mentioned Andreessen Horowitz kind of adopting that new model, um, an RIA model, right? Yeah. Um, do you see that continuing to happen in venture broadly? So that's a good question. And I, I don't really know all the reasons that Andreessen, you know, had for registering and all. And I think they have ambitions that are broader than just things that they might do in the crypto market. And again, you, you can ask them why they're doing that. I would say in the crypto space, we're definitely seeing um, a blending of a venture approach and more of a liquid fund approach which just makes sense to me. I mean, I think there are different roles to play, you know, to the extent that, um, I'll give you one example. Uh, we're seeing a, a pattern emerge where um, investors may buy tokens sort of primary from a project and then also buy and sell in the public markets. And that's really interesting because you want to be a partner to the project and you also want to be an active participant in the community. And that's about you know, being active in the market, it's being involved in governance. But can those, um, not to interrupt, but can, yeah. can those interests sometimes be at odds? Yep, I, I think that's possible. Um, it, it's, all, it's, it's all new. So I think we're, you know, everybody is sort of working out the right balance. Um, at the beginning, what happened is that many of the funds had, would keep illiquid investments, you know, in a side pocket, separated, but still inside the same entity. I think you're seeing more uh, create a sort of a venture style fund and more of a liquid style fund. Um, I don't know what the right ultimate structure is, but it does make sense to me that that you 
that a, an ideal investor can have the sort of patient capital of a long-term venture style fund, but also the ability to par participate in the market. Um, uh, and I think the ultimate sort of right structure will, will get figured out over time, but it is, it's, neither, it's neither here nor there uh, currently for sure. Does that give you the necessary diversification that you guys are looking for? So it's quite interesting. Um, as you said, a lot of these funds, they were initially structured as hedge funds and have started moving into the venture space. Um, even something like Helium, which uh, I, I referenced earlier, Multicoin actually led that investment at yep. USB. We co-led it with them. Yep. You, you co-led it. Yep. So that doesn't necessarily give you that kind of liquid uh, asset exposure that you guys are looking for, or is, is that still? I'm okay? not sure. I totally understand the question, but you know, in that case, where you know, that's a in the sense uh, that you you're kind of double dipping into into helium through your LP. Or, oh, I see. We have exposure to it uh, in, in multiple, you know, through multiple, through multiple entities. Yes, yep. and uh, that's true in some cases. Uh, in the case of Multicoin, you know. We're just one of many investors in Multicoin, and um, it was a great opportunity to work with them closely on and hands-on on something. I think they bring a lot of sort of, you know, crypto strategy to the table, and we bring a dose of the crypto strategy and a dose of sort of regular platform strategy that I think is has been a good balance on that project. Um, and you know, on balance, I think we have the right exposure to that project, and. Um, which is a lot and which is good, um, but it, it's not necessarily a problem because we did it together with them. I would say more the strategy for us is still we we want to have broader access to the market as a whole, and doing that through fund investments is great for us because just from a, from a economic exposure and also from a visibility and connectedness, um, we want our LPs to you know benefit from from all that. Uh, and then, you know, our strategy basically is to uh, focus on the opportunities where we directly can deliver the most value and, you know, engage the most. So helium is like a perfect example of that. Interesting. I think it might be, we've had a few VCs on the podcast uh, over the past few weeks, which has been really cool because, you know, then we get to see where the thinking is on, on many different issues. We'll get into regulation and, and some other topics, maybe Facebook sure. Libra as well. But before we, we move on to some other things, I'd like to know what the firm's view is on the open finance sp space or, or DeFi. There are a lot of different projects, many of which interest, interestingly are really contingent on the growth of the Ethereum ecosystem, which you know we discuss sort of Fred's thinking on that. Where do you view, uh, how do you view DeFi and some of the developments going on there? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the most straightforward view of DeFi is that this is the proving ground for the building blocks of smart contracts and interoperable, you know, crypto assets in a financial space. Um, you've got layering of protocols. Um, you've got, you know, really interesting projects like Maker that, you know, have this governance engine paired with a, you know, really useful, stable asset, um, you know, all the different models are kind of getting experimented with. I just think that it's really fascinating as a laboratory. And, and then the real question is, does the DeFi space grow to become the Fi space <laughs> or, or not? You know, and, Teo would hope so. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know the answer. I, you know, part of it has to do with the stuff we talked about earlier about scalability and are there real limits to what can be done? Uh, I think another part of it is about going, aside from any technical constraints, going from today's relatively small enthusiast audience to more of a mass market audience, and what's the, the path that's gonna get there. Um, you know, when I look at things like gaming, like CryptoKitties, or other stuff like NFTs, like uh, the, the Dapper uh, companies just announced a deal with the NBA to, to bring NFTs, like really broad consumer, I think that's, kind of amazing because you're going to have interoperable digital assets on a blockchain that are going to touch a lot, a lot of people in a new way. I think that's amazing. Um, but on, and, but the same concepts are there inside the DeFi space. Um, and the question is what will take today's audience to a bigger one? 
Um, one thought, and this is not fully formed, but I was just having a conversation about this over breakfast, is that there is, a, I think, a generational shift. And there are people, younger people, I think, in particular, who have probably a more significant portion of their net worth in crypto assets and in DeFi. And, you know, there's, you know, I think it's an open question of whether the DeFi world, like, attaches to the regular financial system or just becomes more and more of uh, people's real financial lives. I think it's probably safe to say that today it's not really the centerpiece of, the fi of people's financial lives in a, in a mass market way. Um, but you could imagine it happening that way as a generation of people have, you know, they own Bitcoin and Ethereum and other digital assets and not stocks and bonds and cash. Um, and if that happens, you know, I think you grow outwards from there. What's interesting about um, something like Dapper Labs is that it's fairly obvious as to where value accrues in that system, which is with Dapper Labs itself as an issuer of these NFT tokens. And, or with um, secondary marketplaces and buyers and, and sellers. I mean, one of the interesting things is to think about is there more value captured in primary issuance or in secondary trading? And for assets that are perpetual, um, you know, you could imagine that the secondary market will vastly outperform the primary market in terms of where how much value is kind of captured. Absolutely, and, uh, and, and Supreme, yeah. I think, is the mm -hmm. supreme example here in that I think the, the primary issuance market is valued around billion dollars and the, and the secondary market at $2 billion. So yep. certainly a lot of activity there. And, and one project that I find particularly interesting as a possible solution there to kind of bridge the two is something like the Unisox model, uh, where you have this bonding curve and, and um, you know, buyers can, can sell back into to the bonding curve and the issuer itself gets to capture that trading uh, value. So um, Damp Labs, Fairly obvious, perhaps not fairly obvious, but you know we'll see. Um, open finance, where do you think value accrues in that system? Uh, probably too early to tell. I mean, the lame, obvious answer is that part of it will accrue down to the lower level protocols that secure all of it. In this case, today, Ethereum. Part of it will accrue into important second layer protocols. And I think that we don't know yet exactly how much and where. Um, part of it will accrue to applications on top that uh, participate in some ways, whether whether that's you know uh, marketplace sort of liquidity, you know fee type of you know on the edges, you know applications on the edges like exchanges and marketplaces or or something else. Um, so there's going to be a, a company layer, there is already a company layer on top, and today those companies are relatively thin, um, but they'll probably grow. I think the other, another big question, back to this question of primary versus secondary, is that um, a lot of projects today are, uh, the secondary markets are sort of private closed markets. So if you look at something like OpenSea for NFTs, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a, a company on top of an open protocol that has its own sort of uh, marketplace. And a lot of the liquidity and exchange protocols are are out there and working, but not the center of the action. So I think it's if you believe that the secondary market is the long term, you know, big piece, it'll be really interesting to watch the those sort of tr trading protocols and if those can be end up being tokenized and really used. And I I can't claim to be like a full expert on where all of those projects are, but it does seem like that's not all the way going yet, but I think that's another really interesting place to look over time. Now, I'd like to thank our phenomenal sponsor, BlockFi. With BlockFi, you can earn interest on your crypto and access the value of your digital assets without selling. The BlockFi interest account offers up to 6.2% APY on Bitcoin and up to 3.3% APY on Ether in a time of low-yielding investments. And it consistently has the best rates in the entire industry. This month, BlockFi dropped their minimums on the crypto interest account. You can now start earning up to 6.2% APY on your crypto with 
any deposit balance. No minimum deposit is required. This means any crypto holder in participating regions can earn interest on their holdings with a BlockFi interest account. Visit BlockFi.com scoop to sign up and start earning interest today. Um, USB invested in Kick, which is a social messaging mobile application in 2013. Indeed. So six years ago. It's been a while. So even before, you know, they decided to launch a token, there was an investigation by the SEC that exposed a lot of interesting things, one of which was the fact that there was some, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote their, their findings, but I believe that there was a, a board member or someone involved in the company who kind of said that this would be a, a Hail Mary move to do the ICO in order to um, prop up or, or save other aspects of the business, notably the, the messaging platform. Um, so that's the context there for, for where uh, Kick sort of, um, you know, got involved in, in sort of being in the crossfire of, uh, yeah, and, and, I, and I, I don't want to uh, talk in, in any specifics about the case because it's obviously there's ongoing investigation there, and you know uh, the SEC has published um, you know its sort of initial report. Uh, Kick has published their response to that, and I think there's a lot of detail there and uh, open arguments about the facts of the case and legal interpretations and so on and so forth. Um, I think what's interesting about the project is that, and what it has always excited us about the potential of crypto assets to work inside of social platforms, is that they, they represent the opportunity for a different kind of a business model, right? And so, you know, it's, advertising is a, is a tough game. Uh, it's a problematic uh, business model for like ob obvious reasons. You have to have enormous scale. You're competing against Facebook and Google. And so I think what Kick got right uh, was that crypto uh, represented a different way to try and build a business in the social space um, by putting a digital asset inside of the system. They had had a lot of success previously with um, other virtual goods, you know, stickers and points and stuff like that. Um, and I think the thinking that you know crypto assets make sense inside of social platforms because for obvious reasons that you can build an economy around them, um, you know, it, it, it just brings, uh, has the potential to increase engagement, uh, has, you, you can just start to do other things, um, makes a ton of sense. And I think that will be proven to be true uh, over time. And, I yeah. I definitely see why issuing a, a, a token would be attractive from the business's perspective. Yep. And, um, you know, funnily enough, I was having a discussion with my, with my brother yesterday and uh, we, we were talking about cryptocurrency and the struggle to actually monetize these open source projects. And you know, issuing a token mm -hmm. seem, does seem like a, an obvious solution there. From the user's perspective though, using these distinct uh, tokens within distinct applications might not be the, the friendliest experience. How do you it, think that that is going to play out? Yeah, know, if, if, Kik had, if Kik had, say, replaced Kin with DAI or Ether or a, a, a more widely adopted currency, a more liquid currency, do you think that that would engender well, a better What's interesting experience? is that Kin is vastly more widely adopted today than anything in the open finance space. You know, they've got millions of Do you of believe users. that? Uh, I mean, I, I know you, you guys have actually probably run some research on it, but like there's millions of users inside of Kick that are interacting. And you could argue that the, um, you know, it's sort of trivial, like the transactions, but, but there, are, there are many of them. But, I, I, you know, we could have a bigger, I think we should have a longer session about like, how do consumers think about currencies? And how many currencies does it make sense for there to be consumer facing? Sure. You know, and like I'm already like thinking about purchases in terms of JetBlue miles and Amex points and dollars and euros. And like, t to be totally honest, there's only a, so much of that you can keep straight it's in your Dunbar's head. Dunbar's law. And exactly. And so I think there's going to be consolidation uh, on some level for particularly for things that are user facing. 
think another thing to think about is that not all tokens inside of social are going to be transactional. So if you look at the props project, which is another one that just did the reg A, you know, that's really a, a staking token for reputation and it's not transactional and it's, but it is yet another sort of signal inside of social that, that is useful. And so, you know, I, I think it's too early to say exactly what is the right uh, thing where and What's interesting to me is, regardless, regardless of whether or not folks are using it, regardless of whether or not the point of the, of the token itself is to facilitate something that's integral to the business, yep. right? Um, the whole point of what we used to call utility tokens is that they have some sort of utility. Yep. But even if, let's say, Kin had all of those things, people are using it, it has utility, are, is, is that fact and... Could that fact be, um, it, can that be at odds with it being a security sale if, the whole, if also the other point of conducting it was to raise money for the business itself? Can those two things be mutually exclusive? I want to create a utility token that adds value to whatever network I have, but at the same time, I need a lot of money. If, if those are the two interests, can it then be a security, even if you have the utility? Yeah, and you know, we could we could do a whole nother episode on interpreting the Howey test. And you know, I'm <laughs> let's I'm, start right now. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and I'm sure you guys have, have looked in detail at the SEC guidance that, that came out. And um, you know, I think obviously the, the sort of ICO boom of twenty seventeen um, made every token look like a security and made everything look like a fundraise and there was a lot of crap that got raised, the money got raised for then. You know, as I talk to folks about this uh, in Washington and, and other places, I think the, really it comes back to if we're building a network, what we're talking about is a new model for building infrastructure networks. And what's so beautiful about the crypto asset model is that stakeholders can become owners and that value if you're an early participant uh, in a network, whether that's social or infrastructure or some other kind, like you can benefit from your effort in making that thing real. And that there is this sort of interplay between ownership and utility and um, you know, the process of getting something off the ground. Like, I actually think that's beautiful. And I think you know, if, if all the early users of Facebook had you know, more of an actual quote unquote ownership stake or, or economic interest or skin in the game or, or something, you know, that would actually be really good sort of for the world. And, and, and that's the model that is here. And I think that's great. And, and I think they're, you know, it's all, it's, it's hard to square that and unpack that, you know, in the context of securities laws. And, and the other thing is like these, what's so, odd about crypto assets is that the nature of them changes. And so the Howey test, you know, is an, about the, what is an investment contract and an investment contract is a transaction. It's not an asset. And so for a lot of these, you know, tokens, it may be that early transactions were of one nature and later transactions may be of another nature. And, you know, in the history of, you know, stocks and bonds and other securities, like we haven't really had that before. And so sure. this whole idea that, that you can have the same asset but multiple different kinds of transactions on it, all this stuff is new. And so I don't want to, um, you know, a lot of lawyers in a lot of places and a lot of countries and a lot of companies and a lot of government agencies are sort of wrapping their heads around these contexts. And I think we'll get there eventually. Um, but I think that, that we have to come back to the, the idea that we're, we're sharing the, you know, the benefit of building new networks. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. And so following on from that, if, if courts, or I guess the SEC, actually, I'm not entirely sure how it works, but... <laughs> so the SEC is suing... Is suing, okay. So it would be a court. It yeah. would be a court. It would be a You're court. Right. So if the courts do rule against kick, what does that mean for the crypto industry moving forward? It has everything to do with the details. Uh, so I, you know, hard to say. Um, I think... Um, you know, there's already been one case where a judge 
uh, contradicted the SEC's view on an application of the Howey test. I'm forgetting on the, the name of the case, but it was maybe six months ago. And, you know, I understand why um, the SEC takes a rather sort of narrow view, or you might call it a broad view of the application of the Howey test, because it just makes sense that they would. Um, I think that there is, over time, whether it's this case or another case or, or who knows which case, um, we're going to get um, refinement of the application of the Howey test uh, as it relates to tokens. Um, I think it's somewhat unlikely that that comes from the SEC directly, although it's not impossible. Um, you know, Commissioner Peirce uh, wrote a post uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, um, advocating for some sort of a safe harbor, you know, uh, and, and, and so maybe there's sort of room to operate there. But I, but I think the interplay between um, uh, the courts sort of interpreting Howie versus um, regulators and others will hopefully be a good thing for crypto because it will bring us more clarity as to the, you know, where the contours really are. Uh, as of right now, I do, it does feel like in the U.S. there's some, a cloud over, you know, the industry because of the SEC's broad interpretation of Howie. Um, I hope that's not ultimately a big problem for the sector because I think the sector is really important and I want it to flourish here in the U.S., um, but I think it's going to take a while for that to suss out. And, and how closely are you and USV more broadly interfacing with regulators? You know, throughout the history of the firm, we've taken an active role on policy issues that impact the internet. So back when SOPA and PIPA were, you know, big thing, I remember that, those sort of copyright and, uh, you know, issues sort of affecting the nature of, of user-generated content platforms, you know, we engaged on that. Um, when net neutrality, you know, was felt like an issue that was, you know, really important to the success of small startups operating on top of the internet, we engaged on that. Um, and to the extent that we think the crypto networks are fundamental to the future of the internet, we were engaging on that too. And so, you know, we are just a small group of people with, you know, limited time and resources, but we've always felt like it's important to engage on these issues and we, we engage on this, this issue uh, in Washington and elsewhere to the extent that we can. This conversation parlays well into what I want to talk about next, which is Regulation A+. Plus. Sure. A number of your portfolio companies have, have gone that route in raising funds. But first, I wanted to point out your T-shirt. Do you see this? He has a little USV square. I need is one of those. Is that on both sides? No, just one. This just, is the, the gray on gray. Wow, that's uh, pretty USV neat. Shirt. These are it's new. very subtle. That was, in, that was intentional. This was v can I get V2 one of, those? of the t-shirt. I, I might be able to hook you up. <laughs> the USB uh, Shopify? That we, <laughs> we gave these out to our CEOs at our annual CEO summit this year. Uh, and I was involved in the, the gray on gray design. I like gray. Uh, one of my colleagues, Bethany, likes to joke that I dress in incognito mode. So just different, <laughs> different shades of gray. And so the USB t-shirt is a, is a staple in my wardrobe now, I, I took a stack of like so 10 of them. So you moonlight as a fashion designer. <laughs> yeah, That's the to headline. the extent that I can. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so a number of your portfolio companies have, um, you know, raised funds via Reg A Plus or registered rather their token yep. sales with Reg A Plus, which is, um, you know, they call it a mini IPO. These things have been a while around for a while. I remember when I was at Nasdaq, there were a few that that were that were done. You either raise $25 million or $50 million for the yep. sale. Um, so those are the two types. When you think about, you know, regulation and, and the reason why BlockSec did this, you know, when I've talked to Manib, it was described as, as a sort of, you know, uh, how can we do this? How can we cover our ass, so to speak, right? If they do deem this thing a security, although we do not believe that it is. Yep. Um, is that... It's not a route everyone can take. It's not nope. really a, a solution, in my view, because it's so expensive for one, and you have to raise, you have to hit that that twenty-five million or fifty million dollar. Um, you don't well, have you to don't hit have it. To, that's but, you, the most you can do. Yeah, that's the most you can do. That's right. But there is still the the cost of. I think Blockstack spent two million dollars. Was it two million dollars? Yeah. Well, so we can talk about. I think the the questions here are, are all token securities, and should they be? I think the answer is no, and well, that we were kind of getting there. And yeah. uh, I personally think that there absolutely has to be a path for tokens, uh, certain kinds of tokens, 
you know, that work the right ways to trade freely, not as securities. And so I would hope that um, Muneeb is right, that, you know, you can go out the gate on, in, in the uh, umbrella of securities and, and then get out of it, you know, over time. And I think one of the big questions with the securities laws, if you look at the, the SEC guidance and the speech that Hinman gave about, uh, uh, about um, Ethereum, you know, not being a security and Bitcoin not being a security, the, the SEC has basically said, like, you know, it's possible for tokens not to be a security once they're sort of fully mature, but there's really not a clear path on how to go from day one to there. And the question is, is the Reggae Plus process part of that path or not? So we don't know. Um, there is uh, a, another question about, you know, the constraints that are part of uh, getting a sort of clearance to do Reggae, and I know both Blockstack and Props you know, went through extensive sort of design revisions with the SEC, and I'm not the best person to talk about all of the trade-offs that were sort of proposed and made, but there were a lot of trade-offs that were proposed and made. Um, in the case of props, they use a Ethereum sidechain sort of architecture, and a lot of the nuances of how that works, I think, were influenced by the back and forth of regulators. Um, and, then the, and then lastly, on the cost, for sure expensive. So hiring lawyers to work on crypto stuff is expensive. Period. What, no matter how you do it, it's expensive. Um, and we've, you know, seen projects do it every different way. The Reggae Plus Plus is expensive. It's, I would hope that it will become less expensive if it maybe can become more of a template for certain kinds of projects. I think it was particularly expensive this first time around because it had never been done before. No one was sure if it would, could even get done. Um, so I think I'm with you. I, I'm not saying this is the way to go for every project at all. Um, I am encouraged that it seems to have at least gotten through for these two, and uh, they're both really interesting projects that are doing different things, and I think, you know, I think I'm hopeful that it will work for them, um, but I also don't think it's the only way to do it, uh, and I don't think it should be the only way to do it. What's interesting about Reggae Plus is that it was invented Invented might be the wrong word, but it was uh, presented as one possible uh, part to raising capital in 2015 through the Jobs Act. Um, it hasn't been a particularly popular method for raising capital since then, I think. No, really you could like, argue that Ethereum did way more for capital formation than the Jobs Act. Sure. Right. And, um, and there's a soundbite. You know, one, one, uh, I guess not not quite rumor, I mean, people but people call it a failure. Or, or some people call it a failure, but but there's also this notion in venture capital circles, I guess, which is that if a project has to raise through Reggae Plus and raise through the the general public, they are not necessarily uh, of a high enough quality to raise through the traditional. Yeah, PC but I, I would raise from I would push back on that particular interpretation because you know. I, one of the goals of selling tokens to the general public is to get tokens into the hands of the general public, right? And for tokens where there's a user base and there's a community, you know, you want to be able to get them into the hands of, of those people. And so in, in both cases with props and with Blockstack, the, the retail part of the A plus was not the whole story. And there's institutional investors in both cases. And, and I think the intention is to get it out into the hands of people. So I believe in that for sure. And, uh, but you could also argue, I mean, I think the point you're making is about sort of crowdfunding more generally. And, you know, if you can't raise from VCs, go, go try and do a crowd sale or crowdfund. And maybe that's true in some cases, but I also really do believe that, you know, you want to get tokens out into people's hands. Sure. And just lastly on this Reggae Plus topic, do you think there is any tension between this distribution process and requiring participants to pass through KYC. You know, what we're dealing with here is, is cryptocurrency and the part of the value proposition is censorship resistance and permissionless fact that participants in these regular class sales have to pass through KYC and, and have to be registered as it were. Is, yeah. is there some kind of tension? There? Yeah, I mean, I think the KYC AML, you know, sort of regime around money and movement of money 
um, is an interesting challenge for the entire sector because part of what um, part of what is so interesting about the crypto sector is that anyone can build uh, a wallet or an app and integrate cryptocurrency and it just sort of works by default and you can you know move value the same way you can like send an email and that as an architecture is not com really compatible with like the KYC regime and setting up bank accounts. Um, and so I think we're going to see different implementations of that in different projects in different ways. I think, you know, looking at thresholds um, makes sense, you know, sort of low, like high, I, always the, from financial crimes regulators are always looking at, you know, high value transactions, cross borders and, and that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, that makes sense. But, um, you know, figuring out, uh, that's just a challenge, you know, throughout. And, um, and I think a lot of the, as far as, far as I understand it, in some of how some of these projects, uh, how, how the reggae sort of uh, fits with it, is that, you know, it's the transitions into and out of other kinds of crypto or, or fiat, you know, where where that wall kind of gets put up, and, you know, in some there's sort of room for transactions to happen, you know, outside of that regime. But but I completely agree that that it, it's not just about reggae. I think that. Uh, this is a, a challenge, like sort of across the whole yeah, sector. Yeah, I mean, th this is. I mean, this speaks to a problem that's not just in crypto, but across capital markets, which is how do we get money out of just the private market and into the into the public through a mechanism that's not arduous, expensive, um, and there, you could have a whole podcast dissecting that. And, and it's around friction, right? And I think here, like, there's so much promise in low friction value transfer. You know, like I show up at a web page, I have a, you know, whether it's MetaMask or it's just my browser has some crypto assets in it, and then something happens behind the scene where a transaction has happened and it's enabled something. I don't even know what it is. It can be invisible. Like that's magic. I think that is part of the magic that this sector is going to bring to consumers over time. Um, and so I think that, you know, you can't have a go get a Schwab account you know, and go through KYC in order to onboard into the, into the whole thing. And I don't think, well, that's where we'll end up, but it, but it's for sure a big tension everywhere. Sure. Well, we want to be respectful of your time, uh, since we're getting, we're past the hour. <laughs> uh, but since we have you, and since USV is a member of the Libra association, I think it'd be worth, uh, chatting about that before we let you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the news around Libra has settled down a bit relative to, you know, the June launch and then the, Congressional and Senate hearings. Yep. Um, I was down there in the heat of of a DC summer. Uh, we have seen recently, though, uh, a number of headlines about them bringing on different policy people um, to 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 advocate and push this thing that a lot of people are skeptical about. Specifically, just just the the idea of this this giant in in the social media space that hasn't necessarily always acted in the in the most proper way uh having this sort of power um one of the one of the questions that a lot of the congressmen and women and senators were asking was this thing was this question of okay sure th there's going to be a hundred members of this of this entity but let's be honest and I, I forget who the congressperson was or the senator but he effectively said, listen, we are a committee. There is a head of the committee who has more power than the other members of the committee. How does USV uh, think about think about the, the balance of powers in this it's organization? Is yeah. it something that, you know, when you guys were sitting down and, and, and drafting, whether it was the white paper on governance or whatever have you, this, this question of, of Facebook having too much influence over the entity um, and... Yeah, how, how was that something that you guys discussed? Yeah, absolutely, and and it's worth backing up one step, which is uh, to our earlier conversation around how does crypto become mainstream and the crypto architecture, you know, touch more people. That's something that we think is important and that we think will be net positive for users and innovation and creativity and so on. And uh, today, there's you know. No mainstream browser with crypto built in, no mainstream phone with crypto built in, very few mainstream apps with crypto built in. And I think uh, this project has the potential to bring the crypto architecture, you know, and uh, exposure to lots and lots and lots of people. And that's really where we sort of came from as a starting point. 
And we completely get the tension and the beef and the questions and, you know, the skepticism and, 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 and who knows. Um, I think as of today, uh, one thing that I think is pretty important is to separate Facebook as, and Calibra as an app on the uh, Libra ecosystem with Facebook as a member of the association. Um, and I think over time, the association uh, has the opportunity to become independent and diverse. Of course, it was seeded by not only Facebook, but by people that they invited in to be sort of part of it. And it's going to grow more and more diverse over time. And I do think that um, governance around the Libra blockchain and Libra architecture will you know, evolve and become balanced. Um, and I also think that Facebook, at the end of the day, is still going to become one of the biggest apps on the system. And so, you know, if I am somebody in Washington, I, I would want to keep those things, try to keep those things separate and, and distinguish what are the things to be thinking about and concerned about with the Libra architecture itself, the Libra blockchain, versus things that Facebook might do with it and kind of keep those separate because I actually think they're quite different. I think one way to possibly quantify it would be how much manpower from Facebook is going into this, right? And the concern being, you know, you may have, again, 100 members, but if most of them are asleep at the wheel or not really doing anything with this, then, all right, it's not really a 100-member association. It's, totally. it's Facebook doing its thing. Could, do you think you could quantify as a percentage maybe what what would you expect um, the the development of this thing will be coming from Facebook? Is it 70%? Is it 50%? Which would be a concern. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you have to look at it over time. Like, like every project, you know, especially in this space, you start off with a small sort of closed group. And if it works, it grows and sort of decentralizes over time. And I think that will hopefully happen here. Uh, I don't know if I can put a number on it, but clearly they've had the biggest role in getting this off the ground. I think our, my point of view on it is, if it doesn't become meaningfully independent, then people won't trust it and people won't want to use it. And so our, you know, big That's part of- That's not necessarily- could you, and, yeah. But also, could you define meaning to be independent? Question. Is that Facebook having one one hundredth of uh, power, or does it mean the Libra Association itself opening its doors to uh, participation from the, the general public? Probably all of the above. Um, you know, um, it's all it's all just sort of getting started, and I think it's uh, it's has a, a ton of potential um, because of its ability to like reach a lot of people and I think bring a lot of people into this, but it's also extraordinarily complicated. Sure. It's, it's in the spotlight. What's You've got the investment regulators. thesis yeah. behind it? Uh, well, let, yeah. let me, right? let, let me uh, follow up on that. Fair, go I, ahead. So yeah. I think I know what the investment thesis is. As a Libra Association member, you also have the opportunity to invest in these Libra investment tokens and uh, USV and, and other association members will contribute some funds to the initial Libra reserves, mm -hmm. and then they will have a pro rata claim mm -hmm. to any interest that accrues mm -hmm. to uh, the, the float itself. So in, in my mind, I think that Libra, if it does launch, and I think there are a lot of questions around that, but if it does launch, I think that Libra can be successful and can see wide distribution while maintaining this 100 member structure. My question to, to, to you, Nick, thinking as an investor with your, uh, I always mispronounce this word, fiduciary, with your fiduciary duty to your LPs, your, your, your duty is to you know, return some profit for your LPs. What will the, in, the incentives be to open up um, participation in uh, great, that great question. to a wider audience. Then you're losing some money. What? Potentially. You, you will be yeah. losing some money because you will necessarily um, have your claim to uh, the interest that accrues um, diluted. So those interests yeah. are at odds. Yeah, potentially at odds. And I, I, uh, and I get the question. I think the, 
the way to think about our investment thesis is what you said about there's going to be an interest in the reserve that the token holders hold uh, that share. Um, there's also um, an ecosystem effect that could happen over time, right? Like we would hope that this would raise up the whole sector and we have broad investments across the whole crypto sector. And so um, we really see it as, as an ecosystem stimulant, hopefully, uh, as much as a direct financial investment. And so, so that's one piece to, to clarify. I mean, I guess the, uh, on this very specific question of will the association members ever decide to open up uh, economics in the reserve to a broader pool? Um, it's a great question. I think there are a million questions about how that association is going to evolve, um, including opening up governance, including opening up economics, including opening up participation. And I think that path, charting out that path, will probably be one of the most complicated things that, that happens in this project. Um, I, this is a really not fully baked answer, but I would hope that, you know, the incentives and the structure is such that by opening up to a broader group, you know, you get a smaller piece of a bigger pie. And, and, and that would be sort of the theory there, but it's, I think, very, very early. And, and there are, you're asking really good questions, um, but we're just, we, we don't, won't quite know yet. And I think it'll be a while before we get there. I think a good way to close, since we have to get you out of here, would be to share, you went to college with Mike Dudas. I did. He was the president of my junior class or my senior class, I can't remember which. It was uh, just Dudas were the uh, signs that were taped up all over campus that year with the Nike swoosh. It was very clever. So yes, we go back. <laughs> Forever the salesman. <laughs> oh my God. Do you have any uh, embarrassing stories? No, we, we actually didn't know each other very well back then, although we have a lot of friends You're in common. So I, nothing, nothing dirty to share on air here today. Shame. That's yeah. all right. Well, on that note, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Stopping by our new my offices pleasure. and Great to sharing your thoughts. Yep. We appreciate it. Cheers. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.